Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome, dearest delegates, to the first episode of the Delegation Game. After so many months of planning and preparing and even a little bit of scheming, I'm so happy to announce that we're finally ready to go. At time of recording, an incredible 33 people have signed up to play the Delegation Game, and I'm still waiting on some people's details, but we have plenty here to make a really fantastic story, and one which looks set to change radically in shape as you... Crazy delegates work your magic. Before we get into this episode, a bit of housekeeping should be addressed first. For those immensely confused about what's going on right now, this is The Delegation Game, and a new episode comes out every Friday. If you would like to take part, please click on the link in the description of the episode or go to wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game and find out more. For $6 a month, you could join the 33 other delegates currently taking part and listen in each week as I narrate all the insanity which they get up to. Alternatively, if you simply want to keep pace with what is going on, feel free to simply listen in each week and watch the story and this alternative world take shape. If you'd like a role in shaping it, though, you know where to go. And remember, you can sign up anytime. It would actually be best to sign up in the earlier weeks 
before any solid alliance blocks emerge. But even if you sign up later, maybe you're the kind of person that wants to try and take these solid alliance blocks apart. If so, any time is the best time to join. For detailed information, you should note that we have a Facebook group for all these delegates, Delegation Game Delegates it's called, as well as several Facebook chats dealing with a whole range of issues, from religious freedom to American interests. It's absolutely brilliant to see how active you guys all are. I am very active in these areas too, so you'll certainly get your money's worth. You're unlikely to find a nerdier piece of role-playing historical goodness than this game right here. If you'd like to know the details of who's in this game and where their loyalties lie, then I would encourage you to track down the spreadsheet document which you can find in the Facebook group in the announcements section and on the website. This document will be updated regularly as more delegates join us, of course. We are, crazy as it sounds, actually about to get into this after three more tiny little notes. First, if you want to read this script to keep up more effectively, then remember all patrons will be able to access the script as per their rewards. Just head over to the Patreon page to find it. Second, is a bit of a technical detail that defies reality, but then again, so does this whole game, so I felt I may as well go the whole hog. Since everyone has arrived in Paris, I thought it would make sense to have all these delegates stay in a fictional hotel, which I'm calling the Hotel Twomley, just because. This way I can effectively narrate when delegates gather together in secret rooms, or at the bar for a casual bit of drinking and scheming. It doesn't mean you guys will never leave the hotel, but it gives us all a base from which to work from, and it means we won't have to go over to everyone's hotel and list all the different places where the delegations actually stayed in real life. It is, of course, completely unrealistic, given the obsession over security in 1919 that different nationalities would stay together, but I feel that if Teddy Roosevelt can make the journey, then we can make this hotel. So to say again, the Hotel Twomley is where the magic happens, unless random events or your own specifications dictate otherwise. Third and finally, once this bell sounds, the episode will begin, and we'll be in full-on delegation game mode, but I will be introducing all these episodes and saying hello each week before we start, like in this little preview section here. I will also be using this section to introduce any new delegates that sign up in between each show. At the end of this show, that familiar peacemaking sound will go off, and I'll introduce you to the weekly challenges which will be sent out to you that evening, as well as the different options for you to vote on. As for how you will vote, I had originally planned on doing it through email, but instead, thanks to the suggestion of listener Charles, I'm going to go through SurveyMonkey because it is so much more straightforward. So every Friday evening, which is when the opportunity to vote will be presented to all delegates, a link will be sent out via email inviting you to vote. And even though it's a survey, we'll work it so that it reads more like a voting process. With all that out of the way then, I reckon we're ready to begin. So without any further ado, I will now take you to the lobby of Hotel Twomley on the early morning of the 18th of January, 1919. The Hungarian countess was beginning to wonder why she'd arrived so early at all. Lady Eleonora Chalk had been waiting in the bar for three hours, but she had been waiting in Paris for even longer. In fact, since her journey had been from the other side of the world, Lady Eleonora, or just Nora to her friends, as she would tell you with a sly grin, had been the very first delegate to check into Hotel Twomley. In the month and a half since arriving, the classy Hungarian lady had made sure to ingratiate herself upon the hotel staff, 
since one could never have too many conveniently placed friends, and she even found time to walk along the Arc de Triomphe and soak in the sights of post-war Paris. The city was dreary and, as Lady Nora felt herself confessing, somewhat dull. Dull and dreary it may have been, but the French capital was not empty. In fact, it was filling up. Since she had arrived in late November, Lady Nora had watched as Hotel Twomley sold off more and more of its rooms. The Poles had arrived, all five of them, followed by the Americans, led by the enthusiastic Teddy Roosevelt, and then the British, Canadians, Germans, and even a Slovenian had followed suit, among too many other nationalities to count. Lady Nora had been here for so long because she had had to travel so far. Her journey began in the little-known Magyar colony of Andaman, off the coast of Siam. The project of setting up this colony as a home away from home for patriotic Magyars everywhere had had its heart ripped out following the outbreak of the Great War and then the death of Lady Nora's husband. But the occasion of the Paris Peace Conference meant that Lady Nora had a great chance to achieve for Hungary some measure of success. The colony experience, while ultimately a failure, nonetheless granted Lady Nora the opportunity to establish contacts and make a name for herself as a tough, wily and capable negotiator. To ensure that she didn't miss the boat, literally, Lady Nora left Siam's coast early, only to find that the conference had not started and she was the only one present. She had waited in vain for the last few days for the other Hungarian delegate, but judging by reports her contacts had given her, Mr. Mihai Karoli was not said to be all that much to look at. Lady Nora was determined to at least give him the benefit of the doubt. He was, after all, a Magyar, but more than that, he was the president of her homeland, and as long as he held the interests of Hungary close to heart, she was happy to give him a chance. A thin man with black, slick-backed hair and a generous moustache walked into the lobby, hat in hand, and ordered something strong at the bar. Lady Nora noticed him instantly for the presence he commanded. This man was surely a statesman of high rank. Could he be the famous Mihai Karoli, president of Hungary? By the look on his drawn face, he seemed to be worried about something. Perhaps he was embarrassed for being so late. Lady Nora rose from her chair and made her way towards the man whom she hoped would be her firm and solid partner for the next indeterminate amount of time. Karoli was only too happy to see a friendly Hungarian face. In fact, he was worn down with strain. Ever since he had assumed the presidency of Hungary in mid-November 1918, crisis upon crisis had befallen his beloved homeland. As a pro-entente Hungarian statesman, Karoli upheld the recent war as Hungary's greatest mistake, and he had watched in recent weeks as its chaotic fallout had enabled Czech, Slav and Romanian soldiers pour into the lands of his struggling country. Caroly was determined to appeal to the West, to lean on the West, and to leverage the West in whatever way he could. As far as he was concerned, Hungary's future did not lie with its old Habsburg partner. He hoped that this handsome middle-aged woman would feel the same. She seemed to possess a presence which almost made him forget that he was happily married with three children, and she was undoubtedly also in possession of a keen mind, something which he'd always argued was the case for most women he knew. This was why he had advocated so passionately for women's suffrage in the years before the war, a mission which made him few friends. Well, at least, few male friends. Mr. President, you are quite delayed, Lady Nora said, apparently unfussed by Carolee's high rank. Carolee's face said it all. My dear, I do apologise, but matters at home have taken a grave turn. Please, 
come with me to this corner table and we will begin making some kind of plan for this afternoon. That afternoon, of course, was the moment when the plenary conference would announce the formal opening of the post-war preliminaries. Initially, it had been decided that only the victorious allies should be invited to this, with the defeated left out, but thankfully, calmer and more logical heads had prevailed. As she walked by a distinguished-looking man in a tailored suit, she stopped for a moment to gaze upon him. When that man started speaking Polish, Lady Nora scoffed rudely and grasped the arm of her president. It was time to determine Hungary's future at long last. The man whom Lady Nora had just scoffed at had been none other than Ignacy Paderewski, and it was his round. Paderewski disliked the idea of drinking for the entire morning before the conference opened, but Josef Pilsudski had insisted that it was the best way to break the ice among the Polish delegation. The Polish delegation was the largest grouping in Hotel Twomley, and consequently it was the delegation upon whom most of the expectations rested. Back home, Polish citizens eagerly awaited news of their progress. These delegates couldn't afford to let their homeland down. Paderewski ensured that at least Hotel Twomley possessed a fine piano before agreeing to check in. It was here, near the bar, that he began playing, and it set his mind at ease. He also liked that it made Pilsudski uneasy to be shown up by a superior talent. Paderewski didn't have the military knowledge and was far from the hard man Pilsudski was, or believed he was, but Paderewski knew music well. He felt a kind of quiet come over the lobby and the bar as the guests craned their necks and stretched their ears to catch even a piece of his legendary playing. It was impolite, of course, to rush up to a legend like Paderewski when he was said to be on official national business. Provided they worked together, Paderewski believed he could go far with Pilsudski. With compromise guiding his path, Paderewski had welcomed Pilsudski's suggestion that he accompany him to Paris, and he had even allowed the grizzled soldier to bring some friends. Paderewski had shaken the hand of one such follower of Pilsudski's, a 60-year-old man by the name of Bagna Kuzal. Kuzal, whose name was very hard to pronounce, had lost a son in the war and was determined to realise Poland's proud destiny by seizing all of Pomerania. This was at least less out there than Pilsudski, who believed Poland's destiny lay with unification with Lithuania and a resurrection of the old Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Another delegate made Paderewski nervous, likely because of the large eye patch he wore and the nickname Iron Eye, which he proudly answered to. The loss of Frederick Bronski's left eye, it was said, was one of his career highlights. Bronski was something of a legend in Polish-American circles for having founded the Sons of Casimir, a Polish-American group dedicated to achieving Polish independence and for his exploits in fighting against the Russians under German direction. The Germans were not particularly good at harnessing his raw energy and passions, but when Bronski was wounded, he spent some time convalescing near the Galician hospital where the fifth Polish delegate, Paweł Lebowa, happened to be working. As a travelling Polish merchant with strongly anti-Russian views, Lebowa and Bronski hit it off instantly. They first met in the café where Bronski would go for his afternoon break to get away from the hospital, so he said. Pavel Lebova later recalled that they met when a large, one-eyed man in the rear of the café yelled out some expletive directed against the Russians and slammed the newspaper he had been reading down on the table. Though normally adverse to taking any risks, Pavel risked striking up a conversation with this like-minded Pole. 
completely unaware of the stories he could tell or the life he had lived. As a merchant who had not seen military action, Pavel was spellbound by Bronsky's tales, and the convalescing Bronsky was equally grateful to have someone intelligent to talk to. When Bronsky determined to go to Paris and insisted that Pavel go with him, ever the adventurer, Pavel Labova agreed. He could bring great perspective on financial matters to bear among the delegation, and the senior Paderewski and Pilsudski both respected him for that, especially because the presence that was, Frederick Bronsky, stood steadily behind his otherwise unassuming friend. Paderewski closed the piano, to an audible sigh from several of the women in attendance. He had not been much impressed by one woman, probably a Hungarian judging by her dress, who was now engaged in deep conversation in the back of the room by a man he believed was a dead ringer for the President of Hungary. What a mess that country had fallen into, Paderewski mused. On his left, he noticed Pilsudski talking with someone. Judging by his thin moustache and graceful, gliding turn of phrase, Paderewski deduced that this man had to be the foreign minister of the newly emerging Czechoslovak state, Edward Benesch. Edward Benesch was smartly dressed, and as always he gave nothing away by his speech, but Pilsudski could tell that this man wanted something. Technically, Benesch had insisted, Czechs and Poles could easily live in harmony, as Poland's destiny was to expand to the Baltic and Pomerania, and Czechs everywhere required the solidification of their partnership with the Slovaks in order to survive. Pilsudski didn't think much of Benesch's idea, his new Czechoslovak state, looked like a tadpole on the map of Europe, and he secretly, or not so secretly, hoped that the Slovaks would join Poland's Commonwealth instead. Perhaps even Benesch's beloved Czech state would join this Commonwealth too? Perhaps, but Pilsudski would have to do his best to turn on his charm first, but this was far from easy when talking to a man, in Benesch, who knew exactly what you wanted before you even spoke. Rumour had it that certain border areas in Galicia and Moravia were trouble spots and highly contested by Poles and Czechs alike. Benesch dismissed these rumours in such a way that Pilsudski felt the Czech foreign minister had done him a favour. After making some excuse, Benesch walked away, drink in hand, and Pilsudski knew that he had just talked with a great statesman. Karhu Rosnak had watched the unofficial meeting between Poles and the Czech from his one-seated alcove near the rear of the lobby. He could not help but feel jealous. As the only Slovene at the Hotel Twomley, it was going to be immensely difficult to lobby and find allies. Rosnak was short, balding, and smoked too many cigarettes, puffing away even now as he pushed his mediocre dinner around the plate. But he had maintained this unremarkable appearance deliberately it made him easier to underestimate. He connected eyes briefly with Benesch, who looked away visibly unimpressed. That was good, though, because the less they knew or cared to know about him, the greater opportunities which would open up for Slovenia at Benesch's expense. The real enemy for Karhu Rosnak was, of course, Germany. Germany and its Austrian friend. But Italy could also pose a problem, as could Croatia. In Slovenia... Karhu Rosnak's tiny country of fewer than 1.5 million, the fact was they were surrounded on all sides, with only a tiny pathway to the Adriatic, representing their outlet to the sea. Rosnak was not looking necessarily at big hitters like the Czech foreign minister or the Poles, he was looking at the small and relatively distant in his hunt for allies. Rosnak felt himself sweating. He was due to meet two of these potential allies in the next half hour. 
Rosnack lit another cigarette and tried his best to relax. Karhu Rosnack's first potential partner was himself rather nervous. As he got dressed in his room, Charles Shear knew that the odds were not in his favour, which was why he had agreed to meet with another delegate who was similarly surrounded, that being the Slovene delegate Karhu Rosnack. Charles Shear represented that forgotten and lost cause of an independent Alsace-Lorraine state, something at odds with French policy and recent Franco-German history. Rather than serve as the tinderbox for that torrid rivalry, Charles believed that Alsatians everywhere would be better off alone, and that by making their own republic based in Strasbourg, Europe's peace would be effectively guaranteed. While on his way to the Hotel Twomley, he had shared a taxi with an oriental man by the name of Sharoon, who later informed Sheer that he was a prince from Siam. Sharoon was supposed to knock on his door when he was ready, and the two men would walk into the lobby together to hear what the Slovenian had to say. It was destined to be a strange meeting. Charles did not even know what this Siamese prince wanted, as he had remained tight-lipped, though still incredibly charming and articulate. For an oriental, Shear was startled to discover that the prince spoke English, French and Thai fluently. For his part, Prince Sharoon was pleasantly surprised to find that this Alsatian, or whatever he was, was willing to talk with him. He was not familiar with what Alsatians or Slovenians were, but he was assured by his uncle, the King of Siam, that one often made the firmest friends with the weakest parties. Certainly, Sharoon was looking for friends, but he was also looking to build a lobby which would facilitate the renegotiations of the unequal treaties with so much of Asia. While he had benefited from his education in London, Sharoon was wise enough to know that the British rule had been predatory and opportunistic in Siam for some time. His family's dynasty could never truly rule as a sovereign house until the British were gone, and getting rid of the unequal treaties was a step in this direction. He knocked at the door of Charles Shear, and he found his hands shaking, which caused him to knock rather loudly. At 42 years old, this was the most nervous and intimidated he had ever been, and he was now glad of Shear's suggestion that they walk to meet this Slovenian man together. Whatever Slovenia was, it couldn't be worse than another century of British rule. A somewhat startled Charles Shear came to open his door, and the two set off down a flight of stairs nearby. The knocking had been so loud that Eleftherios Venizelos was sure that this mystery caller was knocking on his door. Answering it, he observed the odd sight of an oriental man walking together with what looked like a Frenchman, judging by his cigarettes at least. Venizelos mused at the strange friends this conference had already created, and it reminded him that he ought to make some of his own. He had half hoped that the knock on his door was that of the former president, Teddy Roosevelt, whom he knew to be sympathetic to the plight of Greece. Very well, the Greek premier sighed, it was necessary to go up the next floor to meet with the Americans directly. Based on what the British had told him earlier in the day, he knew the Americans were staying on this floor, and he felt it imperative that he got there and talked with them before they became mobbed by the other delegations. Spurning the elevator, Venizelos took the stairs and ran through his major points in his head. Greece's time had come, he was to say, and it was time that the world granted the birthplace of democracy its Jews. This included extensive lands in the west coast of Turkey, something which was only just after so many centuries of Turkish occupation. Reaching the top of the stairs and the floor where the Americans were said to be staying, Venizelos then walked past the elevator 
only to hear a ding and watch with undisguised surprise as the Italian premier Vittorio Orlando stepped out of the elevator onto the plush carpet. There could be no doubt why Vittorio Orlando was here, on this floor. He was surely here to gain the ear of Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson's known enemy and ideological opposite. Thanks to several years of pontificating, Orlando was unsure whether Wilson still intended to abide by the 1915 Secret Treaty of London which had brought Italy into the war. If Wilson reneged on this deal, then Orlando knew Italy and his career would be ruined, so he was determined to do whatever it took, even working up some pressure campaign outside the scenes, if it proved necessary. My dear Venizelos, Orlando began, I trust you are here to see the former president. Venizelos would normally have been more cautious, but he was determined to meet the Italian's confidence with some of his own. Dear Orlando, it has been too long. Have you been to see him yet? Not yet, my friend, not yet, but I'm going that way now. Would you like to accompany me? It would be my honour, Venizelos replied. The two men, the Italian premier and the Greek premier, walked side by side down the hallway on the plush red carpet of the Hotel Twomley towards what seemed like Teddy Roosevelt's room to find the door open. They could hear loud voices and some angry, hostile shouting coming from inside. Orlando looked at Venizelos, who whispered, Do you think it's safe? Orlando, wishing to demonstrate his Italian bravery, took a deep breath and forced his way through the door. Now see here, Orlando yelled as he barged into the room, I will call security a... Oh. Orlando's voice trailed off and his face turned into a frown. He was face to face with the famed proponent of Zionism, Chaim Weizmann, as well as a fellow countryman of Orlando's whom the Italian premier was surprised to see with him, Bonifacio Fidel. We have just as much a right to be here as you do, Monsieur Orlando, Weizmann replied. Orlando insisted he meant no offence, but that he and Venizelos had heard what sounded like arguing from inside. We were arguing, Weizmann replied, before gesturing to Fidel. He doesn't think we should wait for Roosevelt to return. Orlando was confused. Where exactly had Roosevelt gone? The conference didn't open for several hours, and he had been told specifically by the British that the Americans were up here. We don't understand it, Fidel exclaimed in a very strong Sicilian accent. The English said that the Americans would be here. Orlando was initially overcome with irritation towards Fidel. What was he doing with Chaim Weizmann? Could the rumours be true? Orlando had heard it said by a few people that Fidel was an ardent Italian nationalist and lawyer who had secretly transformed himself into a Zionist upon discovering his Jewish heritage. Fidel had never proclaimed his desire for a Jewish homeland in Palestine, but his constant hanging around with Chaim Weizmann one of the most renowned Zionists in attendance in Paris, told the story all by itself. He would have a word with Fidel later, but more pressing matters were afoot at that moment, such as the mission to locate the Americans and gain a sympathetic ear in time. It was then that Orlando realised that something might have been up. You say the British told you that the Americans were staying here? Orlando asked. In this room and on this floor? Yes, Monsieur Orlando. Fidel replied. Just then, Orlando realised, where had Venizelos gone to? As Orlando was walking to the door to leave the room and look for the Greek premier, who had only been with him a few minutes ago, 
The door opened and in walked yet another mustachioed delegate, this man being the Belgian Foreign Minister, Paul Imons. After exchanging greetings with Orlando and introducing himself to Weizmann and Fidel, Imons asked if anyone present had seen the Americans. And who told you they would be there? Orlando asked, dreading the answer. Why, I believe it was the British, Imons replied. It had been a set-up. The English must be meeting somewhere with the Americans, and they had shunted the other delegates into this room, leading them on a wild goose chase so they could all have a great laugh about it and make deals with the Americans before anyone else did. Orlando found his blood boiling and he stormed out of the room, marching all the way down the hall. With Paul Limons, Kaim Weizmann and Bonifacio Fidel all in the same room together, the three began chatting politely about the weather and the bad food at the hotel, unwilling to take the supremely awkward step of storming out of this useless room like Orlando had done. Imons asked if the two men knew anything about Belgian rights. Weizmann replied that Europe had gone to war to guarantee the rights of small nations like Belgium, and he hoped that the Belgians would remember that when Jews across the world worked to set up their own small nation. The three men declared their formal agreement with each other, and Fidel found the escape by asking in the most fluent of French expression, Monsieur Imons, my dear friend, May we buy you a drink downstairs to further cement the friendship between the world's Belgians and the world's Jews? Imons took the hint, and the three men left the room. The room that they had been in was an unremarkable affair, with a large bed in one corner and a generous desk in the other, which faced the door that Orlando had barged into earlier. Had they paid more attention, the men would have found that the room had been occupied and belonged to Arthur McCallville the brave and certainly unusual delegate from Newfoundland. McCallville was unusual because of what he wanted, independence, or at least a significant amount of autonomy, for his cold and distant country, a land of fish and extremes of weather, of hardy people and big ideas. Arthur McCallville wasn't in his room at that moment because he had stepped out to meet with another delegate, Paul von Leto Vorbeck, before insisting on returning due to the dodgy lock on his hotel room door, which made him nervous. McCallville returned 30 minutes later with von Leto Vorbeck and his aide, Horton von Hotzendorf, in tow, and in that time he had missed a great deal. McCallville was impressed by the attitude, fluency and precision of the two Germans, and he wished to ensure that he made friends wherever possible. As they followed him into his room, he noticed three figures that he did not recognise leave through his door but he did his best to play it calm. Expecting, fully expecting that he had been robbed, McCallville approached his door to find the name Theodore Roosevelt, American delegate. Stuck to it. Had he got the right room? Well, of course he had. This was his room. Mr. McCallville, von Leto Vorbach asked in a gruff voice, this is your room, yeah? Upon entering gingerly, McCallville was relieved to find nothing touched, though the bed had certainly been sat on. Shrugging off the whole incident, McCallville continued talking with the two Germans. Von Leto Vorbeck was a decorated soldier from Germany's East Africa colony and had infamously held off the British with far smaller numbers of soldiers and far fewer resources. He had come to Paris, he told McCallville, to ensure that Germany was not unduly penalised for fighting a fair fight and that his beloved Prussia was not penalised either. It was apparent that Von Leto Vorbeck planned to start with the smaller British affiliates and work his way out to the bigger fish. 
While he protested that he was not British, but of Irish Newfoundland stock, McCallville did not protest too much, since it was clear that the old Prussian did not really care. Both men could use each other, and Horton von Hotzendorf piped up from time to time to remind his superior and McCallville that the plenary conference would be opening in a few hours. Hotzendorf swore that he had seen a most peculiar sight that morning, a Japanese man and a Bedouin warrior dining together for breakfast. What kind of peculiar deals were going down behind closed doors? McCallville told what was already becoming a famous story of his, the tale of the Canadian Premier Sir Robert Borden and British delegate Sir Alistair Tancred engaging in a drunken duel over a Parisian woman that they had taken fancy to. This made even von Leto Vorbeck laugh, something which seemed to make the very walls of McCallville's room shake. After sharing a drink, the two Germans excused themselves, expressing the hope that they would see him, McCallville, and perhaps even take a trip to Newfunderland soon enough. McCallville didn't have the heart to correct the two Germans, and it was something of a relief to close his bedroom door, but not before taking the sticker of Theodore Roosevelt's name off the front of it. After the Germans had left, McCallville found a note on his dresser which read, Dear Emissary of Newfoundland, we hope you enjoyed your guests. Sincerely, Fitzwilliam and Tancred, British delegates. It had been a message, all right. The darned Brits had sent the world and his wife into McCallville's room, and thanks to the dodgy lock on his door, those people had just waltzed in here expecting to meet with the former American president, Theodore Roosevelt. Angry as he was, McCallville couldn't help but chuckle a little bit. The prank was a good one. Tancred here was plainly getting revenge on a grand scale for McCallville's favourite story being spread around the Hotel Twomley at his expense. McCallville shrugged and laughed some more when he remembered that he at least got a chance to see Orlando storm past him in the hall earlier on. Now he was able to piece together why that Italian premier had been so steaming mad. For his part, Eleftherios Venizelos was glad to be away from Orlando, who did his head in. But after creeping away from that scene, he had walked straight into another scene at the top of the staircase from where he'd come from earlier. A Japanese man was standing with his back straight, tension running all through his body, while an immensely tall and imposing Middle Eastern man with a head covering examined what could only be described as a samurai sword. Venizelos could not help but gawk at the spectacle. Just what was going on? He caught the eye of the Japanese man who somehow knew his name. Good day, Monsieur Venizelos, the Japanese man began. You stand before myself, Baron Makino Nabuaki, the Foreign Minister of Japan, and His Highness Navoir Sharif of the Bedouin Kingdom of Arabia, who currently examines my sword. At the mention of his name, the Bedouin stopped examining the Japanese sword and handed it back to Nabuaki with a bow, and the Japanese man instantly relaxed. Good day, Monsieur Venizelos, the Bedouin said in such perfect French that the Greek premier nearly toppled down the stairs. How did everyone know his name? Nabuaki and I were discussing the self-determination aspects of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, but I wished to gaze upon the man's sword before talking any further. One can grow weary of talking. How do you do? Venizelos asked, clasping the Bedouin's hand. It was more like a claw than a hand. Venizelos did not doubt that this warrior could have thrown him up the next flight of stairs if he had wanted to. Will we see you later at the conference? Nabuaki asked. Certainly, sir. 
I will be in attendance, Venizelos replied, before going out on a limb and asking the two men, Monsieurs, you don't happen to know where the Americans are at this moment, do you? I know where they are, Sharif replied, with a grin that suggested he was aware of some kind of joke or trick that was afoot. Sharif then explained that the British had been redirecting people all day to the room of the Newfoundland delegate in the spirit of revenge. It all sounds like typical British boy school humour to me, Nabuwaki scoffed as he let three men walk past him on the stairs. That's him, Sharif exclaimed in a whisper, pointing to a short, black-haired man walking in front of the other two. That's Arthur McCalville, the Newfoundlander. He must be on his way to his room. It was then that Venizelos realised that Orlando would have been caught up in the joke, and since he didn't want to be here when that grumpy Italian returned, he quickly asked Sharif for directions to the American meeting. They were in the basement dining room, Sharif said, the quarters of only the richest guests at the Hotel Twomley. That sounded more likely than some random room on the second floor. Venizelos said his thanks and rushed down the stairs, and the Japanese and Bedouin returned to their amicable conversation to be rudely interrupted by a puffing Orlando. You there, boy, Orlando barked at Sharif. You see a Greek man walk by here? Sorry, sir, Sharif replied. I saw no Greeks from where I am standing. As Sharif said this, his companion, Nabuaki, sighed. It was going to be a great deal of work to ship these unruly men into order. Orlando barged past before lunging down the stairs, muttering about Zionists and the English and needing a drink. Sir Alistair Tancred was struggling to contain himself at the prank he had concocted, and Arthur Fitzwilliam kept having to repeatedly flash him a stern warning. The prank was a hilarious one for sure, but he had a job to do now that the Yanks were here. On the condition that they would not make demands of their own yet, the Canadians and an Australian had been allowed to join them for this meeting, which Fitzwilliam predicted, correctly as it turned out, was dominated by Teddy Roosevelt from the beginning. Fitzwilliam believed that he could appeal to the other two Americans, a Bruce Pug and a Joseph Zahn, as well as the oil baron and industrialist and follower of Teddy Roosevelt, who was rumoured to be on his way within the week. He didn't know much about these Americans, but again in this opening meeting, it was Teddy who did all the talking after all. Sir Robert Borden, representing Canada as its premier, refused to allow Teddy to allot such generous time to himself, while Borden's colleague, an Irish-Canadian by the name of Joseph Doherty, by all accounts a distinguished lawyer, appeared nervous. These men had every right to be nervous. They were, after all, meeting away from the official eyes of the Big Three, away from the official American rubber stamp which Woodrow Wilson could provide. Yet, that was what made it all so exciting and exhilarating. Imagine what they could accomplish together. If they could replace Woodrow Wilson for Teddy, then they would be guaranteed to have a sympathetic ear. Since Wilson had brought with him three non-entities and Edward House, it wouldn't be hard to overwhelm this unremarkable American delegation. Fitzwilliam was a bit concerned that Teddy would happily have walked up to and shot Woodrow Wilson if it meant that he would stand at his replacement. Even now, in the finest living quarters that the Hotel Twomley had to offer, the legendary hatred which Roosevelt felt for Wilson made him uncomfortable. Venom poured forth from Roosevelt on every topic even remotely associated with the president. 
and when the Australian, a distinguished soldier and commander by the name of David McKay, attempted to cut in to make a point, Roosevelt intercepted him in an immensely condescending tone. My dear friend, I know that Australia has sacrificed much, but we must not allow our individual interests to frustrate our collective progress. Fitzwilliam believed that he could even hear the wily Australian mutter that it was easy for Teddy to say that when he was the one doing all the talking. When Theodore Roosevelt began asking why nobody else had attended with them in this meeting, Fitzwilliam heard Sir Alistair Tancred begin to giggle and he had to shush him. Should we tell him, Sir Alistair whispered, that they're all in the Newfoundlander's bedroom? Be quiet, Alistair, Fitzwilliam hissed as he tried desperately to suppress his own giggles. The giggling faded somewhat when Roosevelt asked all present to welcome their guest for the next hour, Karl Renner, the Chancellor of Austria. Karl Renner had been meant to talk for one hour, but instead he talked for nearly two, all the while taking questions from Roosevelt in a process that kind of seemed a bit rehearsed. It was plain that Roosevelt wanted those present to like this man. Perhaps he had big plans for him. Indeed, at the close of his speech, Renner, a short, thin, bald and authentically German man's German with an epic moustache, he reached his point. It was only logical to unite all of Germany under his moderating hand and to bring Austria and Germany together at last. This, Karl Renner explained, would guarantee that the West would be safe from Bolshevism and it would protect all peace-loving Germans from the pull of welcoming back the Prussian criminals whom the Austrians would never accept. Fitzwilliam and Sir Alistair exchanged looks. Roosevelt had evidently not factored in French opposition, which was odd for Roosevelt considering his francophone nature. It was only when Karl Renner delivered his final few lines that both Brits realised what Roosevelt was doing. Let it be known, Karl Renner exclaimed, that all Germans desire to unite together as one. All Germans wish to link arms with their Austrian brethren. In the spirit of the 14 points, we wish to make our national destiny come true. And we appeal, in the spirit of self-determination, which the American president has promised us, not to fail the German people in fulfilling this unanimous consensus. To fail would be a betrayal of the German people and a betrayal of the president's own mission. So that was Roosevelt's game. By failing to fulfil his Austrian's impossible request, Roosevelt planned to make his rival in Woodrow Wilson look bad, because a failure to listen to Karl Renner would implicitly mean a failure of his mission to grant all nations and peoples the chance to rule themselves as they wished. It was quite the exercise in scheming, and Fitzwilliam and Sir Alistair believed that they were the only ones to truly absorb what was going on. The Canadians, bored out of their minds, had left an hour before, but the Australian David McKay had stayed behind, determined to see this test through to the end, his stomach growling and his eyes becoming sleepy as lunchtime approached. David McKay had told Fitzwilliam earlier on that he had skipped breakfast in a bid to get here as soon as possible. Just as Carl Renner sat down and the polite applause was given, the door burst open in the corner of the room and a panting Greek premier, Venizelos, materialised. My friends, the Greek premier exclaimed, I apologise for my tardiness. It seems I was led inexplicably to Newfoundland and I've been trying to make my way back ever since. Sir Alistair Tancred erupted with laughter at this as the Greek premier nodded and grinned in affirmation. Fitzwilliam finally let the mask slip as well, visibly laughing as a clueless group of Americans and one very hungry Australian looked on completely confused. 
Just then, the Australian delegate, David McKay, exclaimed, My friends, we must hurry to the Quai d'Orsay. The plenary session is set to begin soon and the Paris Peace Conference is about to open. With all of their high hopes and plans, did these delegates make their way to the French foreign ministry to see for themselves what history in the making actually looked like. It was an experience none of them would soon forget, because it meant that they now had the chance to put into practice all they had learned, all they had prepared, everything they had fought for. It was impossible to predict what alliances would be made, what schemes arranged, what consequences suffered, or great triumphs experienced. All of these outcomes, all of these developments, my dear delegates, are up to you. I am merely your delegate master, and I will see you next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode, guys. Don't worry, they won't all be this large, but I did have to factor in and introduce everyone a wee bit. For those that feel they've been left out in the cold a bit as far as attention given to their character is concerned, you will get more attention next time. I have to keep things balanced, though, because if I gave everyone equal time and attention, we'd be here for two hours. Next time we'll be meeting on the centenary of the plenary session of the League of Nations, so I hope you'll join me for that. But before we go, as I said earlier, we have to reveal the weekly challenges for next week and show the different options that you can vote on. We turn first to the aforementioned meeting of the League. The question is how you would react to the establishment of the League of Nations covenant, and the choices are to permit history, to oppose the League of Nations, to support the League of Nations, to propose amendments to the League, or to establish your own rival institution. Our second weekly challenge is based on the eruption of the Irish War of Independence, which broke out on the 21st of January 1919. The question is how you react to this, and the options are permit history, declare neutrality or disinterest, condemn the Irish, condemn the British, or declare war on Britain. Obviously these options give you guys the chance to shape the narrative in a big way, which is why I have to write these episodes weekly and I can't prepare a batch in advance, it's just, it's too unpredictable. Make sure that if you want to vote, you respond to that survey link I sent to your email address and make sure you respond by Wednesday at 5pm GMT. It literally takes 30 seconds or even less if you're quick, so don't dally, get out there and make a difference on this alternative world. Alright, so... I'm a bit exhausted after writing, recording and everything else, doing all of this delegation game stuff, I have to admit, but I really did have a blast. If you guys enjoyed this, then please share the word with your other nerdy history friends and help get even more delegates involved. A huge thanks for listening to our opening first episode of the delegation game. And if you are playing, thanks so much for playing too. Until next time, fellow delegates... My name is Zach, this has been The Delegation Game, you've been a delegate, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.